0: You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this.
1: The first point that I'm going to talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. Some of you are like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that, and you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role in a dead-end job and that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's gonna to speak to you and give you visions. He's gonna give you dreams about what's next and then he's gonna show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that.
0: And those who say this.
1: Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like
2: a burial followed by a birth.
0: Right, or this.
2: And the Bible says when Jesus held up that bread, on that night with his disciples. He just simply said, this would symbolize my
3: body.
0: As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have.
3: God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live
1: and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive.
0: It's time now to join your hosts pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, here we are in the studio,
2: and so glad that you have tuned in to listen to us today. I am joined by my good friend, Pastor Oakery Oakery how's it going? It's going very well. Well, I want to tell you something that I hear often in my weekly listening to maybe about a dozen or so sermons. I, I hear this, this dropped into sermons all the time, even though generally speaking, it's not the topic of conversation. It just almost is, um, well, like a filler that pastors throw in there. And that is how we are made in the image of God.
4: Which is important and true going back all the way to Genesis, but uh, how you understand that image and what has been retained since the fall and what is lost is going to have a huge impact on your understanding of that picture.
2: Right, and so I was listening to a particular sermon uh, this week, and I just had enough. It was one of those things where I just thought, we got to talk about this. So... Give a listen to this.
1: As we think, so are we. We might put on a front of something different, but ultimately deep down, our thoughts drive us. I, I, and I, 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 I typed this out, I think this is important. And I'm gonna come back to this and through this message is number one, what I believe, what I believe guides my thoughts. What I believe guides my thoughts. If you believe that that uh, you'll never amount to anything, it's, it's incredible how you'll just continue to think on that. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe really deep down, you, you just believe that you were a child of the most high God created in God's likeness and image, and that God has a purpose for you. The Supreme God of the universe, the creator of everything, everything that has been or ever will be, that God created you in his likeness and image for a divine, supernatural purpose. And you begin to think that because you truly believe it. You gotta hold yourself up like royalty now. This this is who I am, this is what I believe, not to be superior to everyone else, but I'm gonna be like Jesus, who was the son of the living God, who is the son of the living God, who came to earth in the form of a servant to serve others as the son of the
2: creator of everything. Now, now, now let me just uh, preface it by saying, yeah, there's some law of attraction stuff going on there, but that's not really what I want us to talk about. I sure. want us to talk about image of God. Right. Well, he hasn't quite talked about image of God yet. And, and this is the only thing in the
4: sermon... That references the image of God. Okay. So, well, this is intriguing to me because when he said uh, what we believe is who we are, I was kind of thinking to myself, okay, there's some, there's some biblical basis for that. Uh, Jesus talking about the heart uh, being the source of the things that come out of you. Of course, he wanted, he, he used that uh, as a, as an evidence of, oh, your heart reveals you to be vile sinners in need of a savior. Or Paul in Romans 10, saying, with the heart uh, one believes and with the mouth one confesses. But see, there's no space for the mouth in this. And and as far as I know, there's no space for the heart believing in Christ. It's about self-affirmation, which is intriguing to me because we gather our people together every Sunday. And of course, I can't know a person's heart, but the Bible leads me to trust the confession that comes from their lips and as a pastor being involved in their lives enough to to see what their heart is revealing about them. The heart will reveal itself is, is kind of what the Bible teaches. Um, but we gather together on Sunday morning. We say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. That's what I want my people to believe, that that's who they are apart from God. And I imagine that uh, this this gentleman would think that I am leading my people into a very dark place because they're not going to have a very high opinion of themselves. But the Bible doesn't want us to have a very high opinion of ourselves. The Bible wants us to have a very high opinion of Christ and what he's done for us. There's something else here that's very interesting. And it's a it's a cart leading the horse kind of thing. He says, well, if I choose to believe, <laughs> well, how do, you, how do you get to choose? I mean, if somebody comes to me and they're depressed and they say, Pastor, I don't think I have a lot of value in my life. I don't say to them, well, choose to believe something else. Because they're going to look at me and think, how? <laughs> what I do is I inform who they are. And because going back to Romans 10, it's not just the heart, it's not just the mouth, it's the ears. Faith comes by hearing. And faith in what I believe comes from hearing. Right. So I have to be acted on externally. And of course, I have to be acted on externally by the word. That's, that's the opinion of, of me that matters. Not even my own self-opinion, but, but the Bible's opinion of me. And that's what the Holy Spirit is going to use to shape my life. Instead, what we're getting here is this picture of self-affirmation instead of biblical affirmation in Christ. And saying, well, I am a child of God. Not a child of God, made in the image of God. Made made in the image of God, right. Those are two different things. Yeah, I'm made in the image of God, but I'm also following after Christ. Like, he's the image of God that I want to pursue, and uh, what model exemplify right uh and there's certainly some biblical places to go for that where we would emulate christ but i always think it's so interesting how they're like you want to be just like jesus and there's a complete ignoring of one jesus distinctly says i i'm not you and you're not me i'm the son of god right i am i'm am the incarnate god in in before you and also There is one distinct place that we cannot go with him, and that is to Calvary. We can can follow his example in many ways, but you have to be very careful when you talk about emulating Christ. We certainly take up our cross and follow him, but uh, the crosses we take up aren't being forsaken by God, aren't bearing the sins of the world. They're bearing very small burdens for one another, uh, bearing sufferings in our flesh and things like that. And of course, in all of this, where's where's the image of that in, in what he's saying about being image bearers? So it's it's intriguing to me that he's, he's using the image of God to kind of present a picture of a, a superman or a superwoman, right? You are capable of these miraculous things because of this image of God in you. And then if you just think about it... <laughs> right... Right. If you just think about it long enough and really like say your daily affirmations. Stuart Smalley. Right. Uh, good things will, will come to you. And of course, that's that's not what the Bible says. It, it's incredible to me that Jesus, he prayed constantly. He was in communion with God. He knew the Father. And, and he was never a glory seeker or a self promoter. And yet here's this guy saying, be like Jesus, seek glory, and promote yourself. Mm. But I think when we talk about the image of God, too, we need, of course, talk about where that image was established. So
2: obviously it was established in the first chapter of the Bible where we read in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it's not that image and likeness are two different things; they're synonymous with one another. That's typical of Jewish poetry, right? Parallelism, correct. And the reason I point that out is because I've heard people try to make hay about these two different So I was reading in another book, it's called Christian Dogmatics, and I wouldn't... um, I mean, there's all kinds of books called Christian Dogmatics, actually, but uh, this one particular one, I thought this was interesting. It said, the image of God has been one of the most discussed and ambiguous phrases in the history of Christian theological reflection. It has been used to mean a number of different things over the centuries and within each century. Some theologians have suggested that the term be excised from theological vocabulary. So frustrating is its interpretation. Well, I wouldn't want to excise it from our theological I vocabulary know. because it's part I of our know. biblical
4: vocabulary, right? I mean, the vocabulary we have is the vocabulary of the Bible. And just because those terms challenge us... And or sometimes- just because we can't agree on what it means, now we're going to cut it out? Right. I mean, and what what a silly thing, and and then you're going to introduce a new term that we're going to debate about just as rigorously. (laughs) It's fruitless to do that. Let's let the vocabulary of the Bible stand. The people that want to change the vocabulary of the Bible usually have an agenda that is not a God-pleasing one, in my experience. So Adam and Eve, both man and woman, we need to be clear about that, were made in the image of God. Of course, we know this isn't a physical image because God is not a physical being. One of the attributes we apply to God is that he is spirit, and spirit is defined by its non-physicality. So, we know that it's not like Adam looked like God in a physical sense. So, obviously, what it means is that he looked like God in a in a spiritual sense, right? The spirit of God was somehow imprinted upon him. I think there is some debate about how extensive that is. There is some debate about this. Uh, what I like about Pieper and his Christian dogmatics is he says oftentimes the debate is one that finally we, we all agree on the absolute terms of it on what we have and what we no longer have. And then whether we place what we have under the image of God after the fall is kind of academic. And whether you see that or not, we agree on the, what, what is lost, and that's really critical. Although it's a big point of contention with the Lutherans and the Catholic Church. That's a big part of the Reformation, uh, Erasmus. Uh, this is all freedom of will stuff, uh, which is its own rabbit trail to follow, and we won't go down it too far. But Erasmus and and many medieval Christian thinkers, uh, and coming into the Renaissance, said human will is lost, but not irretrievably so. That the image is besmirched and covered in mud, but uh, you can kind of scrape the dirt off and, and re- recover that image. And re- recover virtuosity. I'm stepping out a little bit here, and so you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is part of where the the language of a virtuous pagan can come from in Roman Catholic thinking. We would hold that there's no such thing as a virtuous pagan because virtue exclusively comes from Christ. It doesn't mean we would hold that there are moral pagans. Uh, we would hold that there are law-abiding pagans, but virtue itself, which is God-pleasingness. And I think this is, the critical, this is the critical place where the image of God is located. And what is utterly lost in the fall is Adam and Eve and everyone that followed after them lost the ability to fulfill their God-pleasing and God-given role placed upon them. They could create a rough approximation of it, but they could never achieve it. And that's why Christ is so critical. He is the reestablishment of the image of God in us. And as Christians attached to Christ, in Christ, the vine and the branches, we have that image of God restored in us, but only in Christ, right? It's not like I'm, I'm finding that image in myself. And of course, this is part of the foolishness that we're dealing with here, uh, with, the, with, the, the, with that initial speaker, which is this image of God that I find. And, I, and he might even agree that the image of God I find is found in Christ, but it, it's something I find in myself, no, the image of God I find is always in Christ. It's, it's, it's why I keep coming to the cross in word and sacrament. So it's, it's very critical to understand that.
2: All right. So with that being said, let's talk about what we do know regarding the image of God. Yeah. Or, you know, as we say, um, we're not trying to be hoity-toity, but it is called the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. You'll watch tons of YouTube videos where it says the Imago Dei. Well, you know. It's Imago Dei. I don't, I don't, Come on,
4: I'm not. I'm not that good at pronouncing Latin myself. So I probably would have said Imago day." Well, don't. It's day yeah. All
2: right. So what we do know is that Jesus is the image of God. I mean, this is very clear, right? Colossians one fifteen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then, uh, just as clear as a bell, you remember when Jesus was speaking to Philip, Jesus said, "'Whoever has seen me has seen the Father.'" And so what we know about the Amago Dei is that Jesus is this image of God. Nobody, I don't think anybody argues that. However, what we want to get to is do human beings possess the image of God? Now, most will acknowledge absolutely. They will say yes. And what they'll do is they'll cite certain attributes of the human as being clear testimonies of the Imago. So this is known as what's called the substantive view, for humans possess rationality, they possess creativity, they possess morality, they have a conscience, they can communicate, uh, they have dominion over the animals, uh, they possess intellect. You said earlier uh, something that I found that... uh, St. Augustine said to be in the image of God, in the soul, is that there is intelligence, there's memory, and there's will. And you will find this all over the place when one is asked about uh, the Imago Dei. I want to give you a couple examples.
1: Let's take a moment to talk about this thing. God made Adam and Eve in the image
5: of God. What does that mean? Well, we are body, soul, and spirit. Now, I don't think the soul of a human being can be separated from the spirit, but it's making the point that, you know, as God has all of these features, so do we have all of these features, and therefore we're able to do things that the animals can't do.
2: That's all this guy's got about it. It's pretty lame if you ask me.
4: Well, it's, it's, it's soft. First off, I would contend that uh, Christianity's always held to a dual view of the person.
2: Bipartite as
4: opposed to tripartite right body and 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 soul right and and, that, and and that's exactly how Adam was made body and then breathed into soul. There's no third element because spirit and soul are synonymous right and he says that he says, I don't know how to separate the spirit and the soul and it's like, well that's because you can't because they're the same thing right <laughs> so I mean so already we're kind of in a in an interesting kind of rocky place. Does the image of God, is that what distinguishes us from the animals? I don't think that is necessarily true. I can understand why you would kind of locate it there. I think it makes some some sense to our minds, but our minds are fallen too. And frankly, the Bible doesn't care to tell us where our creativity, where our imagination, where our memory, where those things come from. Again, this is what Pieper gets at in his dogmatics is, look, we're trying to we're trying to place where these things are from, but no matter where we place them, whether we place them in the image of God or outside of the image of God somewhere else, maybe it is the, the spirit breathed into us, frankly. What is lost is what is lost. And what is lost is irretrievable. It is lost in a complete way. And so we really need to appreciate that. And so this arguing through analogy instead of biblically,
3: you have to understand the limits of it see in the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that God has created humans in His image. And so everything else in creation, whether it's the animal life or the plant life or um, the cosmos, God spoke into existence. But for humans, Moses says there's a special level of care in creation, that God has uh, sculpted humans, it says, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into them the breath of life. And he has stamped on them his image. That means humans uh, represent God in the world. And so we have some godlike characteristics. We, we can think and we can feel and we can reason and we can make choices and we can create, we can love, we can, uh, we can hate, uh, all those things. Um, but also what it means is that every human life has value. And that human life is not, uh, there's not a utility to it, that we're not valued because of what we bring to the table. Uh, We're not valued because of our giftedness. We're not valued because of our talent. Uh, We're valued because God has put His stamp on us. It also means, as an image bearer, that we have a responsibility, that God has given humans responsibility to to create, to love, to glorify Him, Uh, and that through sin uh, we have been alienated from our Creator, but in Christ, uh, He redeems us from sin, and He restores our restores us to our image-bearing purposes, which is which are to glorify God.
2: And then, before you comment, Pastor Oakram, I'm going to play you uh, another clip uh, because they're very, very similar, but from two different people.
6: I mean, in Genesis, when God created male and female, He says, "Like created male and female," and then He made them in his image and in being in his image, they were very distinct from the plants, um, from the animals, from the sky and the stars. Like none of these things were created in God's image. Um, I think, and that's crazy that God is saying that we, we are, we've been given the ability to mirror him in ways that other inanimate objects are unable to do such as we can speak and have conversations and have intellectual conversations, we can create things. I mean, I'm an artist, God is the ultimate artist, but that is me mirroring him even in how I'm able to create poems, you know what I'm saying? Or um, a father's love for their child or a mother's love for their child. It's like, we're mirroring God. And so it's like being made in the image of God is something to honor and take serious. So when you have the audacity to take somebody's life, it's like, you're not just taking a plant's life, which isn't murder. You're not just, uh, if you had the possibility to take a star out of the sky, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's there's no commands against that type of stuff because it's not made in the image of God, but when you kill a person made in this image, you are coming against God, you know what I'm saying? So I think when people having these conversations about Alton and Philando and all these people, it's like, they label them all of these names, criminal, CD player, seller, person. and Would they forget the weight of, he was made in God's image, y'all. Foundationally, he's that. And so if, I feel like if people zeroed in on that more than the list of things that they might or might not have done throughout their life, then I think they would grieve more because then you would see that that hurts God's heart because he was made in God's image.
2: One of the things that you hear in the pro-life movement is that we're against abortion. And you could add some other things in there too. For instance, like we're against euthanasia. Mm -hmm. We're against genetic manipulation. And the reason when you press people on that a little bit or ask them why they are, they will say exactly what you just heard, that people are made in the image of God and that somehow or another that if you... Question being made in the image of God, then somehow or another the, um, uh, the dignity of man begins to uh, falter a little bit. I guess the thing that I have is instead of unborn babies who are in the womb being made in the image of God, why can't we just use uh, the fifth commandment
4: as a rationale for being pro-life? Well, there is a biblical coherency here a little bit, though. Uh, if we look at uh, the end of the Noah account, she's indirectly this—I'm I'm assuming a woman—is indirectly in, indirectly referencing one of the sparse references to the image of God in us. All right, good. We'll come to that. Well, let's go back to the first guy uh, because there he's he's scooping in uh, some broader images, and and the woman too was talking about creativity, and so. You know, creativity, uh, imagination, reason, those things. Right after Adam and Eve are made, they're given this command to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it. And we know and and teach and confess that uh, just because a command is given doesn't mean they're capable of it. The command itself doesn't give the capability. And so the capability to subdue and have dominion was part of who Adam and Eve were created to be. I think that a way for us to understand this is that, yes, we have creativity, but we see creativity directed in all, towards all kinds of vile ends in this sin-fallen world. Um, we see intelligence directed towards all kinds of vile ends in this sin-fallen world. So what you're saying is,
2: is that creativity and intelligence, that can't be the marker or the indicator that we, post-fall, are still in the image of God.
4: Yeah. I mean, you could maybe say, oh, it's an echo of the image of God. Well, it's like, well, if it's an echo, it's still not the thing, right? There's there's this residual. But it's all, it's all corrupted. It's all dark. It's like, it's like trying to say that a, a cancer cell is, is a healthy cell. It's not. It's a cell that's just gone and lost itself to the point that it's not healthy anymore.
2: Well, to your point, I mean, when people start using this substantive view... When they start saying, well, we're made in the image of God because, as you say, rationality, creativity, uh, being able to communicate, you know, can't Satan do those things? Right. And if he can do those, is he made in the image of God?
4: Right. I mean...
2: Are any angels made in the image of God?
4: Well, the Bible certainly doesn't say so.
2: Right. We have such a high view of ourselves, right? Yeah. And so it's like when you start throwing stones at this
4: somebody's insulting your mom yeah and fundamentally what what the image of god is is that adam and eve lived in obedience to who god was and and in perfect obedience right not 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 a conflicted obedience not a tortured obedience it was just delightful a delightful spontaneous life lived in god and to think that we still have that right or or even a hint of it is 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 preposterous and wrong. Exactly. And so um,
2: again, you can find all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of clips. Get a load of this one.
5: Male and female is the image of God, but not just any man or any woman, a husband and a wife, because Adam and Eve weren't living in sin. Okay. We know that. The sin was eating from the tree they weren't supposed to. The other stuff they were doing was fun. that wasn't sin okay because they were married so when god wanted to create a portrait of himself on this earth he created the marriage that's what you got to understand god said let's put our image our likeness on the earth and he put a married couple that that is the image of god okay marriage is the image of god listen male is not the image of god and all the women can say Praise God. <laughs> Male is not the image of God. Male and female is the image of God. A marriage is God. You will know why Satan hates marriage so much because it's the image of God on this earth. That's why. Satan, listen to this, think about this. Satan did not attack Adam, he did not attack until the image of God appeared on the earth. That's when he got scared. He wasn't scared of man by himself. He was scared when God showed up. When he looked at God, he saw the image of God, but he didn't see it in Adam. He saw it in Adam and Eve. Are are y'all following me? This is phenomenal. That's when he got mad. Okay, so God is a triune God. I know that's a theological word, but what that means is three in one. Let me show you again this little illustration. Okay, God is three. Watch this, three in one. In other words, you can look at God, and you see God, he's one. But if you look closely, you'll see three persons, right? Okay, but now some people say, well now, if he created male and female, and that's his image, his image is three in one, but marriage is two in one. That's where you're completely missing it. Because marriage is a husband, a wife, and God. That is the blessed marriage. That is a blessed marriage. And that's the only way marriage works.
4: Have you ever heard that one? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, no. Uh, I I do believe that the one flesh union of marriage is an imperfect representation of the triune God. It, 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 It suggests it without being it
2: sure but what he's saying is is just a man without a wife or a woman without a husband
4: right which is which is to say that there's a weird conflating of the progress of of genesis one and then genesis two genesis two is a recapitulation of of genesis one with a focus on on the man and the woman but to say that adam and god was looking at him and saying like you're just not it
2: only half my image there
4: yeah, which is crazy because, of course, Eve is pulled out of Adam and then put back together. I mean, as Bruss would like to say, Eve was always there <laughs> in his side. Um, and so that's a that's an interesting conflation. Mar- marriage does draw us into some of that stuff. But, sure. But to say that it is right definitively is a gross mischaracterization of the image of
2: God. Well, then on top of that, I mean, when... When Jesus' disciples ask Jesus about the life to come, and he says something to the extent of um, people are like angels and that they are neither—they're not given in marriage.
4: Right. Or how about the fact that Jesus himself was never married?
2: Right. And we already know that he was in the image of God. We've already established that. I mean,
4: I guess you could play some games with the the bride, the church, but— I mean or or I mean so Paul never had the image of God because he was an unmarried man. I mean right. it it's again, if you know the totality of scripture, you can be like, Well no, that doesn't make sense. Nope, that doesn't make sense. And 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 it at least helps you to narrow in on what the core the core fundamental truth of the the, the image of God is. But you heard all the people just
2: slap happy
4: Well and, and, and this is what happens. You what this sounds like is some classic Jesus. Uh, and just to clarify, exegesis is reading the text and drawing the meaning out of the text, right? Eisegesis is me coming to the text and having an end goal in mind and reading that into the text. So does he say good things affirming marriage? Sure. Of course. And those are true. But his basis for doing it is torturous. He He takes a text that really shouldn't be used to support what he's saying, to support what he's saying. And guess what? Satan whether you're married or not, is going to have a heyday with that. Because he's going to bring you down some torturous roads with that. Because what happens if your perfect God image marriage is struggling? Or ruined by death. Whatever whatever it might be, all of a sudden you're there like, I've lost the image of God. Right. See, sometimes we don't think through the implications of these things. When we're living our kind of content, middle-class lives with our wife sitting next to us, our husband sitting next to us, you can just see the damage it would do to a person.
2: So, I would say that most Christians, they would say, when it comes to, is the image of God still intact in humans? Clearly, the clips that we listen to, all of them say, to some degree, yes whether it is by looking at marriage or whether it is by looking at certain attributes that a, that a human possesses and thinks that they are somewhat godlike, which really does beg the question, are non-Christians are pagans, are they in the image of God? Anyway, I don't want to get too far. I want to uh, read some uh, quotes that I had here from uh, some other uh, books on my shelf. That same Christian dogmatics book that I referenced earlier, it says, The Amago Dei is partially intact, but grievously damaged, so that restoration is necessary. And then uh, the author goes on to quote another guy who said this, Man's moral power and ethical strength may have received a blow from Adam's example in themselves, however, they have not
4: been seriously endangered. That sounds very close to the the classic Catholic understanding of this issue, which is wrong.
2: So you're saying the Roman Catholic view is that vestiges of the Amago have still remained post-fall. Right. And
4: I'm always happy to be corrected by a, a Roman Catholic brother and sister. I mean, I, I, I trust that they know their theology, but, you know, let us contemplate this together. But this is part and parcel of the Roman Catholic view of baptism, which is this almost restoration of the image. And now you're perfect. And now you need to live your life perfectly or, you know, and and you do that through the mass and, and certainly through confession and absolution and of course, satisfaction. Uh, and if you don't make proper satisfaction uh, for all of this stuff after you're baptized, after, after you've been restored, right? Like it, it's, and it, it really is kind of like a, when you see these restoration, like I always remember, my big thing in in the '80s was them res- restoring the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. right? And they they restored its grandeur, its beauty, all that, all, all that. It was so weepy back then, and now it's 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 it's, and it's still impressive looking to this day. But now that it's been restored, don't you dare go blemishing it again. And if you do, you got to go clean it up, right? That satisfaction, and they have a very different image of of. Baptism than we would as Lutherans, which I would say would be b- the biblical picture of baptism. Right? It's not a restoration of something that has been damaged. It's death to life, right? It's darkness to light. It is enemy to family. These are transitions that are bolder and more profound than simply, oh, it was it was kind of beat up, but look, we fixed it, right? Like you just you send it into you send it into the uh, the you send your shoes to the Shoe, shoe repair guy, the cobbler, and he he just fixes them right up for you, and they're as good as new. No, we are made new, right? Uh, uh, and and that being made new is more than just a a cobbling together of what was there. It's a it's a it's a literally biblically it says this a new creation, right? Not a restoration of the old, but a new creation. So what we've heard thus far is really the
2: Amago dei as described in the wider sense in what you're saying yeah. in that it's there it's what did you say earlier it needs to be brushed up a little bit uh it, it's corrupted but doggone it we can you know we can maybe stick the jumper cables up to this thing and and bring it back to life
5: yeah
4: and Now, i think your average christian and and it's it's unclear from the clips we've heard I think your average Christian would say you need Jesus to finish the restoration. You can't you can't restore yourself.
2: But see this is a horrible horrible understanding. Number 1 of original state in which man was in. Of course. Secondly, of the work that Christ has done. And then really the the teaching that Christ gave. For instance, we're going through uh, the book of John, and we just got off Jesus talking at length to Nicodemus about being born again. So what I'm arguing here is not this wider sense of the amago Dei, but the narrow sense of the amago Dei. Yeah. Meaning that we are in Adam. The right. likeness that I'm in is... Roger Boyce Kearns, who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's whose likeness and image I'm in.
4: Yeah. And and,
2: and if I'm not born again, then I
4: die in that image. Amen. And this is actually a really significant. We don't like reading genealogies in Scripture, but the first genealogy in Scripture, the genealogy of Adam. These are the generations of Adam we get a very interesting uh, line. I've got it right here. Yeah, please read. Genesis 5, verses 1 through
2: 3. Just as you said, Pastor Oakley, it begins, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then this is the, the verse I think you're wanting us to pay attention to. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So again, Adam is made in the image of God, yet Seth,
4: his son, is made in the image of Adam. And then how does that how does that end? And after such and such years, what happened to Adam? He died. And he died and of course, that's the important. And he died. And so what do we have in Adam? We have in Adam the image, the imprint upon us of death. Right. Well, absolutely. And so then when you have the scripture that says you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. Yeah. And so and I,
2: that's not an image of God that's got to be brushed up a little bit. No.
4: This is absolutely my point. And And so I think you're right to talk, to maybe talk about this in terms of the broader image of God. So, okay, maybe the image of God does include creativity and rationality and communication and all those things. But I don't care. You could have those things in spades. You're still dying because you still have the image of Adam. And that image of Adam is not enough to sustain you for what God created you to be. And so we need to talk about the image of God in the narrow sense which is that we are no longer aligned towards God as he made us. We are aligned with Satan. Uh, And of course, I mean, and now we're talking about original sin. You can understand why some people get a little gumbled up about this because they want to think I'm born fine, but you're not born fine. You're born in the image of Adam. And the image of Adam is the image of death. And the image of God is the image of life, right? Not just biological life, but but the life that God created us to have eternally in communion with Him. Referencing the two
2: verses that, uh, that people would look at and say that we are, including everybody, is made in the image of God. You've got that one that you've referenced earlier, Genesis 9, 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now the context here is this is right after noah and his family have come off the ark Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of god made he man and then there's james 3 9 he's talking about the tongue with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of god now There is uh, yet another Christian dogmatics book I looked up, uh, and it referenced these two verses, and I wanted to point out what they said. Luther and other dogmaticians explained these verses, the two that I just read, as describing man as he was originally and as he should again become through faith in Christ Jesus, restoration of the divine image through regeneration. Then he quote some other dogmaticians, saying that they regard them as teaching a divine image in a wider sense, namely, in so much as man, even after the fall, is still an intelligent, self-determining, rational being who even now, though feebly, rules over the creatures of God. But also, those theologians who speak of an image of God, in the wider sense, admit That the divine image, in
4: its proper sense, was lost through the fall. And I think that's important that this image is lost, but God remembers who he created us to be, and that means things to him. And so in that way, maybe that echo of our original image does still matter and how we deal with each other. i got to be really careful here, because I'm not trying to pull the evangelical Mm
2: bait-and-switch. But to think that Adam was made in the image of God, which I'll read to you in a little bit of what Luther said about that Mm -hmm. uh, in his Genesis commentary. But to think about how absolutely incredible that was. Yet, as we know, sin destroyed it, We are not made in the image of God. Nobody is made in the image of God. Jesus comes along, who is the image of God, does his work of restoration, still today is restoring people, not just forgiving their sins, not just promising them eternal life, not just giving them a peace that passes all understanding, but beginning to do this restorative work to make us Into the imago dei, as I think about this, I wonder if this bleeds over
4: into the Greek Orthodox doctrines of theosis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a mistake to talk about our Christian life as a process. Uh, There is a lived out aspect of it. I would say that in Christ, in our baptism, the image of God in us is restored. But not completely. It can't be. Well, now, and so I I want to ground this in the paradox of the now and not yet of our faith. Sure. We have it, but we don't have it in its fullness. Right, right. And so I would say we have it completely, but we don't have it in its fullness. And you're going to say, well, that doesn't quite fit in my brain. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't. And that's part of the reason why it's a paradox. And a paradox is it it appears not to fit, but it actually does fit. You just need more pieces uh, of the puzzle. And so we have it. And and that's why when I look at a person I, I don't say to them, "Well, you're 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 getting to be a saint." I say, "You are a saint of God." True. And you are holy and you are worthy and all of those things they are. But they're also at the same time a sinner, right? There's that other there's that other paradox, that simul that simulus de peccator. And so, what are we going to do with that? Well, I want people, I want a Christian to know like you're not you're not striving towards the image of God. You have the image of God. But the image of God is not fully manifested in your life because sin still clings to you like like uh, like grave clothes, and and that's and that's an important aspect to remember. That's part of the struggle of being a Christian in this world. It's not easy to be a Christian in this world, and of course that that's a, that defeats the triumphalism of this image of God talk that we've heard in a few places. Right, I have the image of God, so I can do anything. And I think as a Christian, we're like, I have the image of God, and it. And it makes me strain against all my failures that much more. And it makes me, it makes me long for heaven. And it makes me, it makes me realize, uh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? And that's exactly where this is supposed to put us. And I think that's important for us to, to recognize is the image of God in its proper sense, I would say, is teleological, and the telos is, is our, our final purpose, right? What, what our lives are striving towards. Adam and Eve's lives were supposed to be lives directed towards God. Our lives are not directed towards God. Or even as Christians, directed towards God in a very fitful way. An imperfect way in our lived out life. And to think that somehow me being creative or me being thoughtful Means that I have the image of God sufficiently to be who God made me to be is that's that's death. Let me give a couple more
2: verses here regarding the fact that you're made in your parents' image and not in God's image. You mentioned the genealogies, we come to another genealogy right at the outset of Luke, Luke chapter 3, it begins in verse 23 and runs all the way to 38. 23 says. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it's going to move through son of, son of, son of, and you get all the way down to the end of verse 38, and it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, and we've already read about the son of Seth being in Adam's image. And then it says again, the son of Adam, the son of God. So only Adam is the son of God in his likeness, All the others in the genealogy are in the likeness
4: of their father. Except for Jesus, who is supposed to be of the likeness of his father, but is really the likeness of God. And this is why
2: we call him the second Adam. Of course, of course. Ecclesiastes uh, has another interesting verse. I just wanted to read it to you. It's in chapter 3. It says, and this begins in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, That God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what appears to the children of man and what appears to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust. And to dust all return. Now you would think that if man, mankind, was in the image of God, we're not arguing that he was made in the image of God, he was. But the fall took place. And as a result of that, man is no longer in the image of God apart from Christ. You would think that if that were the case,
4: Solomon would not have said what he said. Right. Uh, although I, I I push back against that a little bit. First off, Ecclesiastes is written in this kind of I knew that I, had, way. I I said to myself, you know, he's going to argue against Ecclesiastes. Well, because he finally comes back to well, sure, the fear of the Lord is the only thing worth, worth love to God me. and keep His commandments. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, well, I think it, I mean, but I think it is worth. I mean, it's it's an interesting understanding, right? And that is kind of the the understanding of the world, right? I mean, the world wants to diminish us. I've always, I've, I've always thought it was interesting that Christianity, which puts God above man, through that, man is elevated to this beautiful place. Whereas liberal humanism, which says man is the, the, the tippy top, right, of everything, has spent almost all of its energy to diminish that. We're the tippy top and we're the smartest thing we've ever encountered we're still just a, a fleck of dust as far as the universe is concerned, and we're still just animals running around, right? And I'm just like, how does humanism diminish humanity while, while Christianity elevates them so beautifully, even though you would think off the surface, off the initial starting place, it would be different. But, I, I mean, so what I want to say is, and we've talked, we touched on this very briefly, which is that one of, one of the, the folks we listened to said, it's the image of God why we are valuable to God. And and that's not true. We are valuable to God and thus he imprinted his image on us. <laughs> it is it, it it's not the image of God that makes us valuable to him. And and so even if we've lost the image of God, we should still view people as people loved by God. And so when I look at a pagan, I say, well they don't have the image of God. And I, but I don't think to myself, so let me murder them violently because who cares, right? right? right.
2: But see, you're, you're but you've got commandments against the, against
4: that. Even if I didn't have the commandments and a conscience, right? Even if I didn't have any of that, I would know as a Christian that Jesus Christ died on the cross for that person. Sure,
2: but the reality is the image of God is not on a non-Christian.
4: No, it it, it is not, and and in fact, we understand even in broader scopes. If you take the, the religious argument to its nth degree, and, and that one lady was kind of taking it there, right? We forget to remember who these people were, that they're children in the image of God, and that should break our hearts that they die. Well, if they die in in people's abuse of power, right? If they die through, through other people sinning against them, uh, of course that should upset us, anger us, and we should seek justice in this world. But the Bible also teaches about the death penalty the bible says that there are times and places in this sin fallen world where we take up swords against our enemies there are times when we pray for the death of our enemies because they are coming against us and trying to destroy us and and we seek god's help in those things and well i
2: certainly didn't look into this but i wonder if you know an advocate
4: against the death penalty would say that that criminal is made in the image of god i i certainly think that a, that's a christian argument that you can make about it. I'm sure they would. But again, what this is important, the image of God governs our right-hand kingdom, understanding of each other. Uh, It doesn't entirely govern our left-hand kingdom. It does make me want to treat people fairly and with justice. I mean, we we always do poorly when we treat any group as other. And we, we have a long history of that, right? Those Jews are other, right? Those Muslims are other. Those pagans are other. And, because of that we justify treating them as less than human well again did jesus christ die on the cross for that person of course and if and if jesus christ died on the cross for that person their their unbelief is still a problem their sin is still a problem just as my sin is still a problem but i don't get to treat them as subhuman no and i don't think anybody's arguing that well but it's been argued historically Oh,
2: sure but what we're trying to discuss is is man currently now especially those who are apart from Christ, are they
4: made in the image of God? My argument is no. 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 And, and, and so our, our uniqueness is how we treat them. And this is the problem about using the image of God as the, as the governance for that thing. Is one, it could lead you into the ditch of saying, well, we all have a fragment of the divine in us. This is that new age mumbo jumbo stuff, right? And, and every single one of us is this little sparkling soul uh, that is loved by God purely. No, there's the the dividing line between humanity is belief and unbelief. Right. Period. Right. And and only in belief, only in coming to Christ and recognizing Him as your Savior and being brought to that understanding by the Holy Spirit, is the image of God restored in us. Right. I want to get to that again. Out of Mueller's
2: Christian Dogmatics, the unregenerate are so far from possessing the divine image that they are said to have no hope and to be without God in the world. And then he references Ephesians 2.12. As also that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to the devils and not to God.
4: No, I think I, think I, was, a, I was a pastor before I realized that only Christians can pray. But that's part of it, right? right. How, how do you communicate with a God who's who, who you don't know? You don't believe in. Yeah, whose image you don't have. Right.
2: right. Okay, so Luther, in his commentary on Genesis, this is what he said, and it touches exactly what you just got through saying. He said, in this manner, the image of the new creature begins to be restored by the gospel in this life, but it will not be finished in this life. But when it is finished in the kingdom of heaven, then the will will be truly free and good, the mind truly enlightened, and the memory persistent. Then it will also happen that all the other creatures will be under our rule to a greater degree than they were in Adam's paradise. So here's some verses here for this initial restoration of the imago dei through salvation. Second Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self, which I think you and I would argue is by means of baptism, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, after the image of its creator. And then finally, Ephesians 4, 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then just, uh, I said there was two more. I got two more. Here's the biblical support for the Christian's realization of the amago Dei, 1 John 3, 2, beloved We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then finally, Psalm 17, 15. As for me, David said, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Referring to the last day, I
4: shall be satisfied with your likeness. Yeah. What I love about all of this biblical text is uh, one of the ways that we have been talking about this, and certainly the, the videos have, is that the image is like the image of a of a coin, right? It's a stamped image. Biblically speaking, that's not actually accurate. <laughs> it's 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 literally seeing God, and like the glowing face of Moses, that's the image of God, and like and God said to him. You can't see my image because of your sin. It's not something that we have abstractly from God. It is something that Adam and Eve had because they lived in his presence. It's some and and think about that language of the veiled face. Who had a veiled face? It was the priests going into the holy place, right? They veiled their face. Why? Because they couldn't handle the image of God either. And then Jesus comes and he is the image of God. He's like, I have beheld the father. Unveiled, I have seen him, and so thus I am his image among you. And you behold me, and you behold the image of God. But again, in Christ, that image was still veiled behind this weak-seeming human flesh. But then you have the moment of transfiguration, right? And they're like, oh, that's what the image of God is. Right. And can can we build some tents so that we don't have to be... Because we know, we know what the image of God does to people because they're good Jewish kids. And, right. And they're like, oh, the image of God kills us. So let's get in these tents uh, away from it. So I think this is important because we often treat the image of God as an abstraction. And I would argue, based on scripture, based on what we just went through, and, and this is why bringing this into scripture is so critical. The image of God is a... Concurrent thing. It is simply living in the presence of God. And so we have the image of God in our worship because we have the presence of God in in, in the word preached.
2: But it's done in a way that doesn't destroy us. It's still
4: veiled. It's still veiled behind bread and wine. It's still veiled in the your poor pastor who's a sinner proclaiming that word, but the word is still efficacious. And so we receive it but that's how the image of God is implanted upon us right we're not just sitting around being like I am a really creative person exactly now I want to stop you right here
2: and I I didn't want to stop you earlier I cannot believe you used that metaphor of the coin the reason I say this is uh, listen to this parting shot you have a coin
7: take out a coin if you have a coin across all our sites you have a coin grab a coin it'd be great if you do if not get one later or a bill a bill or a coin just take one out for this simple experiment? A bill or a coin? All right, or a credit card. (laughs) You got them? Good. Because we're taking up another offering. No, no, that's not (laughs) what we're doing. (laughs) Uh, I want you to just hold on to a coin or a bill, uh, something of economic value to remind yourself, as as just a thought process, that we're going to use this as a mental hook for reminding ourselves of the truth we've talked about today for the rest of the week. Because money is something we often come back to and handle throughout the week. And and in fact, if you don't have it with you now, go get a coin. Just put it in your pocket. And when you put your hands in your pocket, just feel it throughout the week and say, ah, I remember who I am, who I am designed to be. Why am I saying this? Because it comes from a story from Jesus. When Jesus has people come and ask him a question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, show me a coin. And they show him a a denarius. And he says, whose image is on that? Whose image and likeness is on that? They say, well, Caesar's. He says, well, give to Caesar's. What is Caesar's? And then, he doesn't stop there, he says, but give to God what is God's. That teaching only makes sense if Jesus had a very thorough understanding of human being made in the image of God. And he is saying this to everyone there, these are not just disciples, these are not just Christians, these are people who are his enemies, these are people who wanna challenge him, these are religious leaders, and he's saying all of you, give to God what is God's, based on the fact that Caesar's image is on the coin, whose image is on you? God's, give your life to God. Money can just be a quick reference point for my, oh yeah, especially at tax season. Pay my taxes, sure, but give my life. Whose image is stamped on me? Give my life to God. And therein I
4: find my fulfillment, therein I find my true identity. And, and that's very interesting, right? Because I always think about that. And, and I, I always connect it with Romans where he says, well, may, may our lives be living sacrifices. But I think you have to be very careful because Christ doesn't say, that the image of God is imprinted upon us. We simply have that image. And he said, and and Jesus of course does this, right? He teaches again by analogy, but we have to be careful not to make the analogy, the rule or the governing thing. And when you have so many other verses of scripture talking about the image, not being something that is stamped on us. In fact, that's never directly said. This is the, this thing with the the, the coin Is really the closest you can get. And then you have all these countervailing verses saying, well, no, the image of God is is us beholding God, is us being in the presence of God. And, And so why is this important? It's important because it keeps you from thinking, well, I have God stamped on me as I go about my day. And because of that, I've got to give God my life. Right. Or because I do that, I don't have to go to church, right? (laughs) I mean, or whatever, like I've got God with me. And so I'm here on the golf course. I've got God with me. And so I'm here. And it's like, no, the image of God is a constant call to return to him and to bask in that image once again, right? To have the glowing face of Moses through word and sacrament because Moses' face, the glow faded uh, when he wasn't in the presence of God anymore. And that's really critical for us to understand is because a lot of what this gets turned into is and and what the danger here is to say, well, I've got the coin in my pocket and I've got God imprinted probably on my heart. Right. Right. Well, right. But that's where it normally would be. And you think and you think warm, fuzzy thoughts. You think I've still got it. It's like, well, you do because you have faith. But where's faith strengthened? <laughs> where is faith fed? Where where do we where do we come with our weekly burdens that they would be laid at the foot of cross? We don't lay them there. Jesus takes them off of us in our worship and, and brings them to into himself. And so, as with so many things, this image of God, which is a understandably a not a major theme of scripture for us to understand ourselves at all. The verses we have, especially in our sin don't reference the the image of God too terribly much.
2: Well, and there might be a reason for that. And Luther might tell us from his Genesis commentary again. This is a bigger portion to read here, but just follow along with me. He says this on page 62 and 63. He says, Therefore, the image of God, according to which Adam was created, I don't think anybody's arguing that Adam was created in the image of God. He says this, It was something far more distinguished and excellent, since obviously no leprosy of sin adhered either to his reason or to his will. Both his inner and his outer sensations were all of the purest kind. His intellect was the clearest, his memory was the best, and his will was the most straightforward all in the most beautiful tranquility of mind, without any fear of death, and without any anxiety. To these inner qualities came also those most beautiful and superb qualities of body and all the limbs, qualities in which he surpassed all of the remaining living creatures. I am fully convinced that before Adam's sin, his eyes were so sharp, his eyes were so clear, that they surpassed those of the lynx and the eagle. He was stronger than the lions and the bears, whose strength is very great, and He handled them the way we handle puppies. Both the loveliness and the quality of the fruit He used as food were also far superior to what they are now. But after the fall, death crept like leprosy into all our perspective powers, so that with our intellect, we cannot even understand that image. Adam would have not known Eve except in the most unembarrassed attitude toward God, with a will obedient to God and without any evil thought. Now, after sin, we all know how great passion is in the flesh, which is not only passionate in its desire, but also in its disgust after it has acquired what it wanted." Thus, in both instances, we see neither reason nor will unimpaired, but passion greater than that of cattle. Is this not a serious and pernicious leprosy, of which Adam was free before sin? Moreover, he had greater strength and keener senses than the rest of the living beings. To what extent is man today surpassed by the boars in their sense of hearing, by the eagles in their sense of sight, and by the lion in his strength? Therefore, No one can picture in his thoughts how much better nature was than it is now. Therefore, my understanding of the image of God is this, that Adam had it in his being and that he not only knew God and believed that he was good, but that he also lived a life that was wholly godly. That is, he was without the fear of death or of any other danger and was content with God's favor. In this form, it reveals itself in the instance of Eve, who speaks with the serpent without any fear, as we would do with a lamb or a dog. For this reason, too, if they should transgress His command, God announces the punishment. On whatever day you eat from this tree, you will die by death, as though He said, Adam and Eve, now you are living without fear. Death you have not experienced, nor have you seen it. This is my image by which you are living, just as God lives. But if you sin, you will lose this image, and you will die. He says elsewhere, I am afraid that since the loss of this image through sin, we cannot understand it to any extent. Memory, will, and mind we have indeed, but they are most depraved and most seriously weakened. Yes, to put it more clearly, they are utterly leprous and unclean. Pastor Oakley, my point here is, is that the immediate result of man's fall into sin was the loss of the image of God.
4: Yeah, and that actually brings to mind to me a really important point because we have all eaten at the table of rational progressivism which is to say we assume that we are the pinnacle of human achievement which is foolishness (laughs) adam and eve were the pinnacle of human achievement if we we were able to go back in a time machine which of course we cannot do and and never will be able to do and meet adam and eve i think we expect to meet some dopey guy in a loincloth and he is going we if we ever when we do meet him we'll be like oh that's what we were supposed to be, right? It's, it's, it won't be alien, but it will be magnified. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean how th- does a guy live almost a thousand years and you think that somehow we're the pinnacle of human <laughs> achievement? <laughs> well, it's because we've all been educated in that, as
2: you said earlier, humanity, you know, started low and evolution, because of high-speed internet and better dental hygiene, that we're that we're moving up, 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 up. That is the devil's catechism, right there. Amen. Which is on. I know that you and your family uh, enjoy doing things like museums and things like this. You go into any museum, and you're going to see over and over, this was a jellyfish. Uh, you know, uh, millions and millions and millions of years ago. And so this is just reinforced we're catechized in this whether we like it or not we don't only have to go to a museum we could be watching a pbs show right. and it could be on sharks and for crying out loud they're gonna always start the same way millions and millions of years ago and so we've been taught that man goes from the bottom to the top the reality is that you just pointed out which is the truth is that man is going down. We're a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy yeah. of a copy. We're like those old mimeograph machines, you know, where it starts out pretty clear, but after about 10 copies it looks more like a bruise. Right. And and you actually
4: see that. I mean, part, we think we're smarter than the past cuz of course we you know, that old we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And we are. And I think Luther's writing here. It's so lucid and so earthy One thing I always want I want people to appreciate and I want to encourage people to do. If you want good theology, pick up some Luther. Uh, I've read, you and I have both read plenty of theological books that are impenetrable and they're dense and they, I feel stupid after reading them and I'm thinking to myself, how do I even present this to my parishioners in a way that's at all edifying? Luther's works it's almost all edifying. I mean, he's still a man. He's not perfect. But, sure. but his, his his insights are edifying insights. And he takes God's word and he makes it earthy and he makes it real. And he was a pastor. It was actually through reading Luther, his Genesis commentary,
2: that got me starting to think about this. And then when I started to hear more and more pastors dropping in, as I said earlier, this you're made in the image of God stuff. Apart from Christ, it's just everybody. And then you type in image of God into YouTube, and everybody's like, oh, we're all made in the image of God. Okay, yeah, right, whatever. Luther talks about how when God called Adam to name the animals that adam's intellect was so superior that he could look at an animal and he knows the intricacies and the complexities of the animal simply by observing it he talks about how much time now people spend in studying and dissecting just to be able to have just a a figment of the information about a certain animal. And still it's incomplete. We're not not doing the best that we can. And he's talking about how Adam knew that completely. It doesn't matter if it was an animal. It doesn't matter if it was the flora. I mean, it, it was everything. And I'll give you this one example. God puts Adam to sleep. Adam wakes up. He immediately sees Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's not like he had to go dissect her. It's not like he had to go feel around. I mean, he probably did some feeling a little bit later on, but there was none of that there. He knew immediately for somebody to suggest that we are in that image still is just ridiculous. And I'll tell you, I'll finish with this. This hit me the other day. I was thinking about these things, and there's that verse where Jesus said that He withheld certain information because He knew what was in them, and it made me think of Adam. Here's the second Adam. He knew what was in them by simply looking at them. Yeah. So yes, my point is, we get in the uh, uh, we get in the DeLorean, we get up to eighty eight miles an hour, we go back, and we see this. I would argue with
4: you. Yeah, it would be alien to see these to see these people. Maybe so. And and this is the thing, right? Where the modern mind says, "Well, that's because he did this all in like a late morning, right?" He's like he's like name the animals. Well, I mean, what am I going to do with the rest of my day? And we think that's impossible, but he's working at a level. Oh, this makes me so mad. I mean, I beat this table the other day when I heard this.
2: There's a show called The John Ankerberg Show. It's been on for a long, long time. I don't even know if it's still running. But he's kind of like a Christian apologist. We actually heard him. He was um, interviewing a guy by the name of Hugh Ross. And uh, that's the one who said that because man is tripartite, God is tripartite. He's the one who was saying that the day, the sixth day, couldn't be a morning and an evening. Because Adam has to learn about all of the animals. He has to examine them and observe them before he can begin to name them. It's ridiculous.
4: It it goes to show that our fall into sin has dimmed us, but it's made us think that we live in the brightest of lights. Right. it's, It's one of the strange things that sin does. And
2: this is what I was trying to get to earlier. I don't know how to say it without it sounding as bad as it really sounds. But isn't this a motivation for salvation? I realize that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. I get it. But but wouldn't everyone want to be... Restored to the image of God, especially when they realize they're not in it and that salvation offers this this beginning of this restoration.
4: And that's, I think, part of the reason why there's so much of this false teaching about the image of God still hanging out there. Right! Because then we can be like, well, it's bad, but it's not that bad. I mean, and then that, you know, that flows in all the other stupid, like, well, all my buddies will be in hell. No. <laughs> Darkness, weeping, gnashing teeth. That's, that's it. <laughs> I mean... Let's be real clear about what the Bible has to say on the matter. It's not just a hot place where bad things happen. It's a it's a place where you're de- deprived of all the good things of God, and that includes your buddies, and that includes beer. <laughs> well, you know, you always hear this, uh, you know, hell is the
2: absence of God, which, again, is not a biblical, uh, you know, teaching either. It's, it's an absence of his grace. Right, and his mercy. Yeah. And so what do you get there nonstop? Wrath. Exactly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is where the Bible says, "Where can I go to flee from you?" Yeah, but important to understand that wrath was was designed for Satan and his fallen angels, and it them wasn't designed only. for us. Yeah, them only. Yeah, one way I want to wrap this up because we're touching on it is why does this matter, and why do people talk about the image of God so much? And as I've been listening to it and exploring it, you know, we want to understand the image of God the way we do because it it brings us to the cross. Uh, through word and sacrament we say I want the image of God I don't have it Jesus is and so and and it will reflect on me and I bring that out in my life but I don't in this life I can't maintain it myself right I have to constantly come back to the image that I have which is Jesus uh, given again word sacrament the way I've seen it presented so often in kind of pop Christianity is that, you have the image of God, and so you can do amazing things. It's not Christ. It doesn't affirm us in Christ. It's self-affirming. Look at look at you. And, and maybe they'll say, well, look, you've always had the image of God. Or you have the image of God now because of Jesus, but now now you don't need Jesus so much anymore because now you got the image. So now, right? Get out there and do something and great. That, and that's the very first thing we heard, right? If you, If you believe that you're no good, you're going to be no good. If you believe that you have the image of God, yeah, you can do it. And it becomes this, it, it destroys what God intended. Adam and Eve didn't live their lives thinking, I'm going to do great things. Adam said, I'm going to be a farmer. <laughs> and Eve said, I'm going to help my, my farmer husband. I'm going to be his wife. I mean, that was their, their identities were husband and wife, farmer. And I mean, maybe they were both farmer. Who knows? I mean, it doesn't really get into the how they played that out. Uh, but And then eventually mother, father. And what's the language that we're getting in? We're getting the language of vocation. And the people that tend to talk about the image of God as this really critical thing for you to understand about yourself in this self-affirming way, they want to destroy vocation because they don't believe that it's good enough for you to change your kids' poopy diapers. They don't believe that it's good enough for you to uh, stay up with your wife when she's sick. that uh, that's that's fine if you want an ordinary life, but we want you to have an image of God life and an image of God life is out there, you know, knocking on doors, converting people, kicking, you know, kicking in the teeth of of bad people, whatever it is, we are always tempted to have two-tier Christianity. I understand the temptation because me being a good husband, no one's sitting around thinking like, wow, you're a really good husband. Maybe every so often somebody like, I can do a good job. Usually when they say it to me, I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea. But when you're like, look at, look at how you go out and, and you stand on the street corner with your Bible and you wave it. And, and I just wish I was that courageous and that kind of thing. And it's like, it's just puff, 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 right? And again, this, that isn't to say that there aren't people who are called to do that. There are. Paul was called to be the missionary to the Gentiles. He was. But to act like that call is the only call worth having... Uh, and he's saying that the image of God is is only affirms that kind of call. Um, that's that's a kind of thinking that's, that's completely antithetical to Paul himself, right? When Paul talks about who we're supposed to be, he doesn't say, be a missionary like me. He says, be a good husband, be a good wife. He says, be a good slave. I know. And if he says, be a good slave, you know, he wasn't thinking break all the bonds and go fly it around doing crazy, super Christian stuff. He was just saying, be good at where God's placed you. And sometimes he places you in really in, in what you view as really good places, and sometimes he's going to place you in what you think are really crummy places. But God is God's working in all of those places, and you don't need to go seeking uh, some super Christian way to live out your life. Great, great point. That actually takes us into the
2: whole idea of vocation, which we will uh, save for later. But there's one more clip, Pastor Oakley, that I want to play for you, and just get your feedback from it here regarding image of god genesis 1 27 28 power packed
7: with amazing foundational truth for human identity
2: <laughs> human identity huh so so that tells you right there that he's talking about the image of god being in everyone
4: yeah and oh, the, the way evangelicals talk about scripture it's just sometimes painful to me it's we have such a beautiful historical contour and then you're power packed I just I feel like I'm in a power bar commercial or something. He's like, get your five-hour energy of Jesus right here in the scripture. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it, it grates on my, on my gentle, Lutheran ears. Gotcha. It's in the middle of the creation
7: story. God has finished creating all this other stuff. At the end of every day, it pauses and says, and it was good, and it was good. But then on the, on the sixth day, the crowning glory of the sixth day, it tells us this. This is where we pick up the story. Then God said... Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over all the creatures that move on the earth. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air and every creature that moves on the ground." Huge truth there. Central to what we've just read is that it says something unique about human beings. Made in the image of God. That's our big idea, made in the image of God. That's, if we can, that's all we want to grasp today and then ask the question, what does that mean for our lives? We are made in the image of God. Stanley Gretz, a theologian, writes this. Indeed, no assertion moves us closer to the heart of our human identity and our essential nature than does the declaration, we are created in the divine image. That declaration moves us closer than anything else we could be told to getting a, a sense of who we actually are. But it, it answers one question and raises 10 more. What, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And, and does, does the wrong that we do corrupt that image? Do we lose the image? Do some people have the image and not others? Uh, how does it all work out in our lives? But primarily, what does it mean to be made in the image of God and then what are the implications of that? I asked people yesterday on Twitter and Facebook, thank you, we got so many people responding both through a Twitter and Facebook, you get a chance to go over Facebook on my Facebook page and look at some of the responses. Some of you responded brilliantly. I, I asked the question, was it mean to be made in the image of God? And I think I hashtagged it, help me write my sermon. And uh, I really appreciate your responses, thank you. I was cramming, you know. And, and the responses are delightful, so thank you. Some of you had some really brilliant answers, and some of you had, you know, answers. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for diving in there, it's awesome. Uh, there's been a variety of responses to this in different uh, Christian sects and movements and theological schools. I mean Mormons say that it comes right down to just having a body, because God has a body. And so to be made in his image means physically, we're like God, he's just bigger. But we're we're like, we're like God physically. I mean, the early uh, church leaders, in the, especially in the medieval movement, said that it's intelligence. We have intelligence, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And of course you get a bunch of educated, privileged, smart men hanging around a room together, they're gonna say being made in the image of God means you're intelligent. But what does that say to all the people who are not as privileged, who do not have an education, who are just stupid? Does it mean they are less made in the image of God? Rightly so, the the Protestant reformers, when you look at church history, rejected that idea of the image of God. They replaced it though with something that I think is, I think is just equally as misleading. Now they. They had what they called a relational understanding of the, of the image of God and, and, and the term is good. I use the same term to say that, it, that being made in God's image is fundamentally a relational concept. But they meant something different by it. They meant as we are in right relationship with God, we are made in God's image. In other words, God's image in you is righteousness. And that's what Adam and Eve had. They were perfect. They were righteous, and so your holiness or your righteousness being in right relationship with God is the God's image in you. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that's Genesis chapter 3, we'll talk about it next week. When they sinned, they lost that for the most part. They were unrighteous. They were wicked and sinful. They, They would say that the image of God in us is more like a mirror than a picture. A picture you carry around with you you are always representing the image of God. But a mirror only reflects the image of God when you are standing right in front of, when you are in right relationship with God. As soon as you walk away from God, you cease to reflect his image, at least for the most part. almost like the moon only shines because it reflects the sun. But if the moon were to get full of itself and say, I am so bright, I fill up the night sky, I'm gonna go find my own planet and just shine there all day long. And then the moon takes off and it realizes as it takes off, it's like, I'm not just so bright anymore. I lost it. What happened? That's what we do. We lose the image of God when we move away from God and that starts at Genesis chapter three. So from there on in. now, what? the Protestant ref- reformers knew, is that the Bible doesn't say this. They knew that the Bible, in at least a few places, refers to all people at all times as reflecting the image of God, no matter what. Uh, a couple of examples are there in your notes, in both in Genesis and in James, Old Testament and New Testament. It's stopping him here,
4: we,
2: we actually dealt with those verses.
4: And his phrasing is very dodgy because he says a couple of them are. And what he should have said the two are, because these are the only two, and as you read, the Reformation, they knew it, and they wrestled with it. It wasn't like they just waved their hands and said, well, you know, we know that this doesn't affirm what we want it to say, and, but we're just going to ignore it. That's what modern pop Christianity does. They said, in order for this all to work and hold together, we're going to bring this understanding to it. Now, you can push against that or not, but don't. you can't just dismiss it with a hand wave. And please, don't act like there's more support for this than the two you're referencing. The two you're referencing is your support. And speaking of
2: that, I mean, since he's talking about the reformers, I did want to mention that in the Book of Concord, in the formula, the solid declaration on original sin, it says this. Original sin in human nature is not just the entire absence of all good in spiritual divine things. Original sin is more than the lost image of God in mankind. So the Book of Concord, it it lays out the fact that this image is gone. But it says it is at the same time also a deep, wicked, horrible, fathomless, mysterious mysterious and unspeakable corruption of the entire human nature and all its powers. It is especially a corruption of the soul's highest chief powers in the understanding, heart, and will. So now, since the fall, a person inherits an inborn wicked disposition and inward impurity of heart, an evil lust and tendency. We all, by disposition and nature, inherit from Adam a heart feeling and thought that are according to their highest powers and the light of reason naturally inclined and disposed directly against God and his chief commandments yes they are hostile toward God
4: especially in divine and spiritual things right and i'm imagining that he's not going to mention genesis 5 and how the image of adam becomes the image that humanity continues in. And, and so again, one of the things that makes Lutheranism so special is that we really do try to address these issues biblically in their totality. And when you're trying to make a point, you can pluck out verses that can make your point. Again, the Reformers knew those verses, they wrestled with them, but they held them up in the totality of Scripture and they said, in the totality of Scripture, this is where we have to be. And to just kind of hand wave and poo-poo that is very disingenuous. And to act like you have more weight than these two verses to support what you're saying, you're just not going to refer to it, is very disingenuous. and this is. But this is something we can do. We're trying to make an argument. All I'm saying and all we're ever saying as pastors is, let Scripture shape those arguments. and And let's look at what previous Christians have said, our confessions the Church Fathers. Let's see what people in the faith before have said about these things to help inform our own understanding of Scripture. Uh, but finally, Scripture is the arbiter of it all.
7: And so they had to at least admit that there was something left of the image of God in us. They would call it a
2: fragment of the image of God. Now, Pastor Oakery, I've, I've read from Luther. Uh, I've read from Lutheran theologians. I've read from Scripture and i've read from the book of concord nothing that i've read from that is orthodox says anything about a
4: fragment of the image of god remaining i don't know who he's talking about no no of course we are running in lutheran circles but i don't calvin didn't believe that certainly calvin didn't believe it i'm i you could probably find some out there anabaptists or radical reformers who but that again that's like cherry picking sure anything from the edge cases sure. of of christianity um, and for him to just say that, and not give it even a single reference, is again, very dodgy argumentation. And he, and, and make no mistake, this is a sermon, but this is a clearly a, a laid out argument that he's trying to draw people to his understanding. Uh, just a twisted trace of the image that
7: remains now, a relic of God's image. Calvin would say, but whatever relic remains must be frightfully deformed. So there's only a tiny, tiny bit of the image of God left in you and what is left itself is frightfully deformed. This allowed them to start the question of human identity with our identity as sinners, as rebels, as those who are totally depraved. And our critique of this approach is that it starts the Bible as though the Bible begins at Genesis chapter 3 and it skips Genesis
4: 1 and 2. That's a very strange argument. Uh, Luther, well, we just heard Luther talking about the image of God and how magnificent and powerful it was that we can't even really fit it into our thinking. Luther and then Calvin fully understood what Genesis 1 and 2 were about which is to teach us what we had lost. But for us in our current humanity, the story does start in Genesis chapter three. It's And it starts with the promise of a savior. Right. And so all scripture, as Jesus himself said, all the law and the prophets proclaim him. What
2: you're saying there is we're standing on the back end of Genesis three, and we're so desirous to want to reach out almost and grab the forbidden fruit itself, which is Genesis 1 and 2, and somehow or another pull that over. I mean, that is so good over there that we want to pull that over to help us define human identity, i.e. anthropology, now?
4: And it's so bad, and Luther made this point in what you were reading earlier, is that what god is going to restore in us in christ is is, better is better than that so why are we why are we chasing after genesis 1 and 2 because we're special little snowflakes and we just
2: gotta hold on to something here about how good and bright and wonderful we are
4: and and this is why we let god be god be still and know that i am god and quit trying to quit trying to invade the garden of eden there's a cherub there with a flaming (laughs) sword for a reason (laughs) So yes, of course we live in the a genesis 3 world. How do we not? And Christ is the only way out of it. We don't we don't go back to it by just wishfully thinking it. We go we we get something better in the restoration and the recreation of Christ. This world has to pass away so the new heavens and the new earth may come. Now, liberal theologians said
7: that's wrong. They knew it was wrong, but then they swung the pendulum in the other direction and said, so, you know, that's just telling people they're sinners as the starting point for their identity is off balance, and it is, it's not biblical. And so they would start at the other direction and say, you're just glorious, wonderful image bearers of God, period, and you're just, you're perfect, you're wonderful, you're light, you're love. And people would be attracted to that. But that's also off balance in the other direction. The Bible starts by saying who we fundamentally are as image bearers of God, no matter what. That's what we're focused on today. But then moves on to like we will next week. To talk about what it means to be corrupted in that what it means to be sinful what it means to be broken and yet still retain the image of God in us which the Bible says clearly now in this passage then we've said that we're made in the image of God what does it mean
2: look at the four r's you've got in your notes alliteration baby you know what he's saying here is is that the beginning portion realizing that you're a sinner is wrong which is hilarious to me, because how does every Lutheran liturgy begin?
4: And he would be outraged, I'm, I'm assuming, if sure. he came to into a Lutheran church and say, this is that old grounding that isn't true.
2: Right. And then he goes on to say that the liberals knew that was wrong, that position was wrong. And so they went to the other extreme and says, oh, no, you're, you're all that in a bag of chips. Well, then he goes on to say, "But this is the truth," and he he gives four R's. Yeah,
4: four R's. Is, as is, to, is is Jesus any of the four R's? No. I mean, and and this is the problem, and and I really want the listeners to understand this. Look, yeah, if if all we did at in the Lutheran liturgy was say you're a poor miserable sinner and then slam the book shut, yeah,
2: and and say, "Smell you later."
4: Yeah, you should you should flee from us. That's awful but we don't leave you there we say in the of by the command of my lord jesus christ right i forgive you all your sins in the name of the father and of the son of the holy spirit we don't have to pretend that we're better than what we are we don't we don't have to pretend that we have the image of god in us in in any way that is worth mentioning it's lost even if you want to go that calvin route and say i have this small deformed little relic like what are you going to do with that it's like following a, a broken burned up piece of pottery Look, I've got pottery. What do you at that point? No, it's nothing. And so we come and we say, I have nothing. I've lost your image. I, I hate you. And I, and I work against you every day of my life. And he says, well, of course. And that's why I died. <laughs> my Holy Spirit has brought you here so that you can know that I'm better than you. <laughs> and, and that I've done it all for you. Yeah, there's no room for my aggrandizing myself in that. This is really the humility of faith. It's uh, I just preached on this uh, on uh, on last Sunday. We had a text from Romans 11, which is that we were all consigned to disobedience. Not a single one of us, right? And we were consigned to disobedience that we would all be saved by God's mercy. And so if we're all disobedient, we're all in this together. Right, That's the point. And, and, and so we're not sitting around pretending like some of us have the image of God and some of us don't. We're saying none of us have the image of God in ourselves. Only by faith, only by grace is that image restored with that mirror in Christ, Right, the moon <laughs> shining the sun, which is actually a really great analogy for what we believe. He, he had the truth of it right, but then he just, he just kind of poo-pooed it away. Well, don't let him poo-poo that away. This is who we are. We, we reflect it. And it's good. We reflect it in the world. This is our good works, right? We don't make our own good works. They're prepared for us in Christ, and so they're reflected out of us in Christ. And it just breaks my heart that he he wants to he wants so badly for this to be us. And it is so liberating to say it's not me. It's that it's Jesus on the cross. He's done it all, and I surrender to that completely. I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but I'm forgiven, and I'm restored, and in him, the image of God, I too have the image of God. Not in its fullness in this life, but I have it, and I long for the day when it will come to its completion.
2: Right. And so does St. Paul, who says in Romans chapter 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing
4: with the glory that is to be revealed to us there you go that's the glory of the image of god we will see him face to face and what we'll be doing we'll just be worshiping right that's that picture revelation it breaks my heart to to hear someone who understands it but then just says but that can't be right because he had the heart he had the truth of it but then he said but no it we've still got to be we've still got to be fine We've still got to be okay, and 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 that becomes the self help Christianity, right? Jesus, the life coach at best, who says, "You can do it because you you've always had it in you." Right? That's every I've got three girls. That's every Barbie movie ever made. <laughs> I'd like to think that our Lord and uh, our Lord and Savior, our God, who created us, sustains us, redeemed us, and sanctifies us. Uh, has something a little bit more potent to say to us than, than the moral of every Barbie movie.
2: So, summing it up here, Pastor Okri, is everyone made in the image of God? No. Are lost folks made in the image of God? Do they have the image of God? No. Are believers made in the image of
4: God? In the waters of baptism, in their recreation and rebirth there, yes.
2: Is that the beginning of the restoration of all things?
4: Yes. The first fruits. Amen.
2: Well, this has been fun. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast as we discuss Imago Dei. E. Day E. Make sure you put that end on there like that. The Day E.
0: And we'll get to another topic next time. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your host pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thepluckedchicken.